Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the helm as we record for a second straight week with the PGA Tour playing in the background. Jordan Spieth, again proving a strong draw card. However, it's not Pebble Beach we've gathered to talk about today, but a much broader sample of golf courses and indeed a much bigger topic than the fortunes of any single golfer because today we're talking about golf's footprint and how it has, does and will influence the future of the game. The USGA's Manager of Green Section Education, George Waters, will join us in just a moment to talk all things golf acreage. And for all the club golfers out there wondering why they should be interested in the distance discussion, buckle up because today you'll get some of the insights into Answers. Before we meet George, whoever it is, as always, a pleasure to introduce co-host and organiser of today's interview, Adrian Logue. Logue, nice job getting George on board for today's discussion, which actually feels like an important one. Uh, thanks, Rod. Yeah, I've been uh, – I've admired George's work for quite some time. There's a very good Feed the Ball podcast uh, with George, and uh, he's always got sensible stuff to say. Um, so he's a, he's a good follow on Twitter, and uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And um, I was very happy when George accepted the invite, and then I think I scared, almost scared him away. <laughs> Four thousand word list with talk, of questions talking about the him. sort of stuff I'd like to talk about. So I sent him a massive thing. Which, uh, <laughs> yes, things look much longer on Twitter than they do in a Word document, don't they? Which is the danger of writing your questions in a Word document. I'm sure he's up to all of it. Let's find out some more. As I mentioned in the opener, George Waters is the manager of the USGA Green Section Education, but that doesn't begin to tell the story of his journey in golf. For that, as Logue's already mentioned, track down episode 67 of the Feed the Ball podcast with Derek Duncan. It's a tale well worth hearing, but for our purposes today, let's just establish George's cred by saying he's a highly regarded course architect and construction expert and played a pivotal role in the USGA project we're going to be talking about today, the study of golf's footprint over time using aerial photography to compare courses over decades and yes that is as big and complex a project as it sounds george waters you must be exhausted after all that welcome thanks for taking some time to chat really looking forward to getting some insights today guys thanks so much for having me on literally the least we could do and we're always up for the least we can do this project that you've been involved in here george it's part of a the distance insight reports which i must say is a much more comprehensive study of the issue than i think most of us realize when i went to the page that contains this particular project i came across a thousand other articles breaking down the distance insight reports into all different sort of areas but we want to concentrate on this one today because this is probably not the most glamorous aspect, is it, of the Distance Insight Report, but it may actually be the most important in the broader discussion about golf's future because this is where the game bumps up against the non-golf world, George. Golf and how much space it takes. Yeah, and this was certainly uh, an area where there was uh, a lot of conversation uh, just sort of in you know the golf world discourse that you see in the media, that you see in social media, of what the impacts might be, how do golf courses change? Well, you know, we think this changes this way because my course changes that way. And, but there was never really a lot of data or real measurement behind it. And, and even as we went into the project ourselves, we certainly had theories of what we might find, but you know, a big, a big point of, of emphasis was that we were going into this with an open mind and we were going to just, we were going to try to learn, you know, how things really do change. And what we found was, uh, which is what was found in, in a lot of the Distance Insights research. Uh, as you mentioned, it was expansive and really went into a lot of different areas uh, and potential you know, issues, is that the forces involved are, are kind of nuanced. There are multiple forces involved. Sometimes they're pulling in different directions for different courses. 
And it, it's, it's really, you know, it ends up being, of course, more complicated than any one simple answer. But with that said, there were definitely some clear trends that we observed through the research, some of them related to distance and some of the, you know, some of the biggest consistent trend changes that we saw didn't really have a distance component, but were very consistent across golf courses and are something, you know, for the golf world to kind of think about going forward. And I think that was another interesting aspect of the research was the the distance findings, but but also the non-distance findings and just gaining a better understanding of how golf courses change, what's different between a golf course that opened in the 1920s to one that opened in the past 20 years. Uh, and there's some really interesting, really interesting findings. You've touched on something straight up, which I imagine must have been must have taken up an awful lot of your time early on. What courses do you choose, <laughs> and then how do you go about studying this whole mapping? There's a whole bunch of factors involved, isn't it? So I guess the decision was aerial photography, uh, and then I think you had some some rules, for want of a better term, of, of what a course might need to have in terms of that to make the cut in what was going to That's be studied. Right, uh, the sampling was was a really important part of it, uh, and, and I won't say that it was easy either. It actually took up a really big piece of time at the outset because once we we wanted to have uh, for the eighty course sample, which was really an effort to try to get a handle on you know, sort of the quote average golf course. We wanted an even distribution of public and private courses. We wanted an even distribution of, these are U.S. courses, public and private, an even distribution of regions. So Northeast, Southeast, Central and West. Um, and then another even distribution of decade opened from the 1920s through the 2010s. And so finding courses randomly selected, so finding a random sample of courses that meet all of those criteria and have enough high-quality aerial photos that you can actually perform an analysis every – our goal was to have a photo about every 10 to 20 years of a course's life that we could measure and compare with the previous and the ones coming up. And that's pretty easy for courses that opened in the 1970s, 80s, till today because there's plenty of aerial photos available – Courses from the 1920s, 1930s, you know, number one, in the 30s and 40s, there weren't that many courses opening because there was a depression and a war. And so you have a limited number of courses that open. Aerial photography wasn't, you know, what it is today, obviously, where you've got, you know, Google Maps every, you know, every couple of years yeah. or every year. Uh, so finding courses that fit the bill through that random sample, it was a lot of just getting spreadsheet after spreadsheet of random lists and then just kind of tossing courses out as we couldn't find ones that worked. But we eventually got to 80 courses for our, our sort of study of the average golf course uh, and a really good cross-section, which is what we were hoping for. And we also included a 15-course sample of you know what we would call, what we call sort of in shorthand, championship courses. But basically courses that had hosted men's professional golf events in kind of recent recollection. And the reason for that was we hypothesized uh, that those courses were likely to have kind of a different set of uh, pressures on them from the sort of distance issue perspective. Those courses also have a, a very different level of resources than the average golf course that most of us play. And so they've got an easier ability to make changes. Uh, so they're not limited as much 
by the cost of altering the golf course and they face more pressures potentially to do so. Mm. And so that list, we tried to develop, uh, a range of course types. We didn't use the same architect. We tried to vary the regions and we also tried to select championship courses that had opened again in different decades. It wasn't a random sample because we were picking the courses, but we wanted to get at least a good representation of courses in different parts of the country, courses that were designed by different architects uh, and courses from different generations that still host championships to this day uh, to kind of get again, as good of a, of a case study sample as we could get, even in a relatively limited sample size. And then we also had uh, nine courses from Japan and nine courses from Australia uh, as part of additional case studies. Again, those were uh, those were samples that were provided to us uh, just because someone had the uh, we had a connection that had access to good aerial photos of those courses. So. You know, while those limited sample sizes, you know, wouldn't represent, you wouldn't make statements about Australian golf courses as a whole based on that sample. But it did give us an opportunity to just see, you know, put some international context around it and understand, are there likely some differences between international courses and U.S. courses? Uh, or are the trends the same? Are they the same, but the sizes of the courses are different? What might we find if we if we looked into that? Indeed. Just be a bit careful there, George. I think you might be accidentally touching the mic occasionally. It's a horrible crackling sound which distracts from what you're saying, which is incredibly interesting <laughs> and important. So we don't want that uh, to be oh, the case. Oh, sorry about that. No, no, not at all. Logue, crucial, in fact, more crucial than anything in this study is to get that process that George just outlined right, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Uh, particularly for that main sample uh, of the 80 US courses, that, that main sample – is is where the real good data is because there's quite there's enough data there to actually get a clear indication of the trends and there was a lot of I could see how there was some stuff controlled for in in the in the study or there was like these annotations um, describing you know factors such as the fact that golf has moved out of metropolitan areas and that's tended to give golf more ground uh, to work with but. Uh, my my immediate reaction. Uh, I'd like to get into some of the uh, findings. Um, I think because my immediate reaction was utter shock at the increase in the footprint of golf courses over over the period sampled. Um, I, my intuitively, I would have thought it was going to be the opposite because of our experience, our anecdotal experience here in Australia, is that courses shrink. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have, uh, particularly metropolitan courses, have housing encroaching on them. And sure, there are new regional courses that get built in Australia, which are on very big properties and and have pretty sizable footprint. But the vast majority of golf in Australia, I, I would hazard to say, has shrunk over the period sampled, just because clubs keep selling off little parcels of land to to do little projects. But both of those things, of course, can be true, can't they, George, that individual courses can be getting smaller, but with new courses being built, overall the average increases. And I suspect that's sort of what you found. Would that be roughly? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to to cover in that. I mean, the first thing I would say is that uh, the definition of footprint for the purposes of this study uh, matters, where when we're talking about footprint, we're kind of talking about the entire golf course 
property that can be clearly identified as being part of the of the golf course complex. So that's going to include everything from the entrance drive to kind of the clubhouse area, maintenance facility, practice range, and the golf course itself. Um, so it's a little bit different than just the course. And that's going to be part of, I think, what we saw in in that increase in footprint, specifically towards more recent courses, is that there's just more that uh, you know seems to be included in a golf facility in a modern context mm-hmm. uh, than would have been in the past in terms of you know practice facilities, for example, uh, grew a lot uh, in our study. They, I think, nearly doubled in acreage from the earliest map years to the later map years, and there were obviously a lot of courses that didn't even have one when they opened initially and nearly all of them did all the private courses did by the end. And the vast majority of the public courses in that 80 course sample did. And all of the, uh, all the championship facilities had them and they, they typically tended to get bigger. Uh, so that would be one example of how something that isn't necessarily part of the golf course is continuing to grow. Uh, now there's a distance component to that as, as golf courses, you know, as the need for a longer driving range becomes more important, the range necessarily becomes larger. But there's also a cultural component to that where there's just a greater emphasis on practice, both, you know, an interest in practice for game improvement, but also just golf culture, at least in this country, limited time. You can't necessarily always get out to play a full round like you used to, um, but you can go and, you know, hit around the short course. Or you can go and go to the chipping area and, and spend a little bit of time in the evening. So those facilities have grown uh, over time. But yeah, there was a there was a pretty noticeable jump in, in golf course footprint uh, from our results, kind of about the, ni- the 1990s mm. forward. And, was um, a- and that also kind of coincided with uh, some of the other distance-related increases that we saw. Yeah, you immediately think about the golf ball and those mm. sorts of things. I, I think that's probably one area where it immediately stands out to me, and I suspect you'd probably agree with me on this one, Adrian, the practice of particularly the driving range notion in Australia, mm-hmm. even with new builds and resort courses, is pretty unusual. It's uncommon to find a driving range at a golf course. Not so much the short game area. Most places will have a little short game practice area, but they'll tend to be quite small here too. I get the sense in America it's there's much more of an expectation that there'll be a driving range and a full chipping and pitching facility and those sorts of things yeah. attached to course. I think well, that, that spoke to the cultural thing yeah, that George much. just described. It was it was noted, I think, in the Australian in the appendix on Australian courses that uh, there is this less of an emphasis on uh, driving ranges. Although one of the sampled courses in Australia was Kingston Heath, which tended to skew a lot of the Australian stats because Kingston Heath has bucked the trend in a lot of ways. It's it's actually increased its land. A little bit to get a drive, a, you know, world class driving range there. Obviously, uh, as it hosts tournaments, um, and uh, there was, yeah, the, the, it, I think it is a cultural point of difference that the US uh, does have this essential. I think it's probably the same in the UK. Would be my sense uh, as Australia, it'd be less less. Not that it really matters. On I guess what that what's important about that though, George, uh, and. As I said, this is not the most glamorous part of the Distance Insights report. That belongs very much to the equipment, and that's the stuff that we all like to argue about relentlessly on Twitter and the ball, and it goes too far and all those sorts of things. This would suggest that perhaps equipment's only one part of it. This is as much cultural, certainly, 
in the US as it is perhaps hitting distance driven. It's about what consumers demand. Is that fair? I think that there's there's no question uh, that what the consumer demands is and sort of golfer expectations are a major uh, driving force in in how golf courses change. And we observed that in a bunch of different ways. Uh, the footprint aspect of things, I think, you know, can see be seen as part of that where just, you know, the desire for more extensive practice facilities, the desire for, you know, various extras that maybe weren't there in the past, uh, that would be part of it. The golf real estate development, George, it just puts it, the golf real estate development, put a couple of hundred houses around a golf course with a footprint of everything expands and the nature of the way the game is designed yeah, as you exactly. would change is mean, that's, that's sort of a fundamental change. Exactly. Um, and then you also see, you know, golfer expectations are a huge factor in maintenance costs, right? I mean, what golfers expect from bunker consistency, fairway playability, all of those things uh, have a cost implication to them. And we saw pretty noticeable trends uh, towards those areas wanting to shrink over time at individual courses because of that. And so, I mean, that's another example of how that's a non-distance related phenomenon really but it's it's a good example of how the golfers expectations and wants are shaping golf courses you know as time passes both existing golf courses and new golf courses yeah the one one thing about the report it it confirmed a lot of things that you just suspect like there's actual data there to confirm some things you suspect you see old photos of golf courses where uh there's a lot more sand. It just looks like there's a lot more sand on golf courses in the past. And Do you this mean bunkers or just as in sandy waste? Just total sand area uh, because I don't think some of these old photos you would have been able to identify more formal bunkers versus mm. waste areas, George. I, I don't know. There, I know there was some issues that you had to struggle with with sort of identifying where the boundaries of tees were and all that sort of thing. It was... Uh, or looking yeah, it was, at estimating bunkers, underneath trees and things. It was one of the easier, for the most part, the bunkers were one of the easier things to identify on a lot of golf courses, at least the American courses. You know, some exceptions to that would be the earliest photo of Shinnecock that we used got pretty, you know, the, the line between bunker and kind of scruffy sand area was pretty blurred, um, but still, you know, could be deduced. Uh, the Australian courses, uh, Victoria and Kingston Heath were were not easy necessarily to identify where a formal bunker began and where that sort of kind of natural sand belt scrub kind of started. Um, so we did the best that we could with those, but for the most part, especially with the U.S. courses, they're pretty defined. Yeah. Uh, you can see them pretty clearly. And the finding was that the total sand area had decreased over the decades, which is yeah. formal bunkers. You mean unsurprising in it? Well. I, I don't know if that was defined differently, was it, George? Yeah, so the number the number of bunkers uh, in general remained pretty much consistent on average from the earliest year that a course was studied to the end. Um, but the total sand area decreased, uh, I want to say by more than 10% in that 80-course sample and by potentially even more than that in the championship course sample. Um and I think that that goes to costs. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the that's the driving force there is that if you're seeing bunkers, the number of bunkers more or less remain the same, but the area is decreasing. Yeah. That's going to be cost driven. Um, 
and a little bit of that, you know, formality aspect of it too, where, you know, a course that had a lot of sand blending into sandy wastes as people want things kind of formula formalized and, and encapsulated that tends to just kind of tighten up the boundaries. Right. Um, and in a, that was kind of that bunkers result was an interesting one because I think some of us, you know, you could have an expectation going into this that, you know, with the increased in hitting distance, that courses were adding tons of bunkers to have to combat this. Right. And, and what we saw was that the number of bunkers wasn't changing that much. Sometimes they were being eliminated from one place and flipped further downstream to kind of challenge longer hitting distances. But there wasn't a big, you know, you might have thought that sand area on courses was increasing. Uh, and it wasn't. It was the opposite. Yeah. I reckon there's a cultural element to that as well in a lot of places. For filling sure. filling in a bunker can be controversial. Just slowly over time making it smaller, people don't <laughs> notice. And so there's an I think, element I of- mean, I do, I do think that there's, yeah. there's absolutely uh, some validity to that. Yeah. And interestingly, it, it is also another thing that's demand-driven because- you know, golfers just demand you, – you ask your typical golfer what do they want to improve about their golf course. Oh, it's God. Consistent sand faster <laughs> greens. Why would you That's Why the only, would you do that to The you? only two things Dude, they ever say, consistent sand, faster greens. Yeah. And, and about, this uh, consistent sand obsession yeah. is, is actually hurting the strategic options for golf, which you used to see in some of these older photos where there's a little bit more sand coverage um, across the course. But, you know, because people were probably a little bit less fussy about – having every bunker drain perfectly with very expensive bunker liner and uh, oh, per- perfectly to, raked sand. And you're a course the, architect, the, Just George. the man hours that go into the maintenance. Of- Talk about the obsession with condition by the paying public, which is what drives a lot of this stuff. I saw on Twitter briefly uh, some shots from an exhibition match between, I think it was Jack Nicholas and Sam Sneed from Pebble Beach. Oh, that's Good. a beautiful video. The yeah. USGA put that out, I think. I think yeah, they might have, yeah. yeah. And the difference in the condition of the course, just the surrounds of the greens and the, the – you would find it hard to find – most of the guys playing the modern PGA Tour would find that almost unplayable. Yeah, it's – I mean, it's an interesting – it was an interesting aspect of this study and, and just kind of – I think it's something that that's really good about delving into the, the way that golf courses change over time is that – I don't know how much people necessarily realize how much their golf course is changing in the moment, mm-hmm. right? Because the changes are often gradual. It's not some dramatic event. Things are just kind of shrinking and shifting and moving around. And you don't necessarily have an opportunity to take stock of, okay, this is what we've been demanding from our golf course superintendent, from our board, from you know our you know club ownership, whatever it is what has the effect of those demands been? And then to look back on it and say, well, was this really what we wanted? I mean, we, yeah, okay, we wanted bunkers that played better, but did we want less bunkers? We Did we want you know, fewer bunkers than, than we used to have? Did we want to have smaller bunkers? I mean, those are things that you get a chance to ask yourself when you kind of look at it over the course of time like this. You know, did you want smaller fairways? I mean, because you could make a very good argument that golf courses of the future, you'll never see another course necessarily built like the National Golf Links of America uh, because, or like the old course, because there's just not going to be a course that has 150 bunkers on it again because of that cost factor. Or if there is one, it's going to be massively high budget 
endeavor because it's just not going to be affordable for someone like me that thinks, you know, these old links courses and national golf links, these great places are these great examples of design. And I think it's so great that they have all of these challenges and all these different ways to play them. It's hard. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a shame to lose that largely driven because the cost is just too expensive, you know, for it to happen again, which, which I think is something that is a choice that we've made as, as golfers at large. And, you know, we're now sort of seeing the impact of some of those changes. So that's why I think looking at these things over time and really trying to put some real measurements to them is important because it gives you a chance to understand whether what you, what you were asking for was what you really wanted. Yeah. Uh, there's, so, so much to unpack there. <laughs> there really the, is. The, um, the thing that strikes me, mentioning something like the National Golf Links of America, it it does have that crazy amount of bunkering that you wouldn't, it'd be very unlikely to see built today, at least built to the way that it looks right now, where you also have manicured grass. Like it, it, it's probably far more heavily grassed than it was mm. uh, back, you know, 100 years ago despite having the same sand area, I imagine the playing surfaces 100 years ago would have been formally grassed, but then it would have... Less consistent than what you'd probably say. The the rough would have sort of degraded into something less less of a monoculture. So you have that look at the National Golf Links of America where, yeah, it is this spectacular thing, but it's also highly polished environment that that has been created there. And, And it's, you know, boundary fence to boundary fence. It's all... Uh, one managed environment. Uh, I, I think you know, as a as a contrast, a, a new course like Atara Eighty has its own sort of challenges in that way, where it's there's a lot less formal grass and a lot of sand. But it seems to me like that sand is, and you're, you're maybe the perfect person to ask about this, George, given you you wrote a book called Sand and Golf. <laughs> Um, but that that sand seems to be shaped very formally and there's this sort of micro shaping that goes on in some of these newer developments like Atara Edi. I think we see it a little bit down at Peninsula Kingswood here in Australia Um, and uh, Streamsong, which I think you worked on, George, uh, one of the courses there. There, There's this sort of micro shaping that goes into the areas that are well away from the the playing surfaces and I I think in the old days that, that would have just been allowed to shift and blow around and i think that happens a little bit still but there is this desire to keep this perfect look going boundary fence to boundary fence this perfect well, perfectly, look, you know, this perfectly in real, inverted commas natural look yeah. which is not necessarily that natural again you get uh, a, a pretty heavy impact of of golfer expectations on that not there's a couple of interesting aspects of it but you know, those sort of naturalized areas in, you know, various different environments, whether they're, you know, the sandy kind of sandscapes that you see alongside Piner's number two, whether they're these sort of dry kind of semi-arid uh, boundary areas that you see in courses in California and so on that have tried to reduce uh, turf area along the margins of their holes to save water because they, they feel water pressure. And so they replace it with kind of a naturalized area that difficulty is that you know those areas can certainly save you water uh but what people will, will often find is that golfer expectations for what a naturalized area <laughs> is supposed to look and play like can end up being so high that 
you end up investing the same amount in labor. Yep. You end up spending, you know, potentially even more time maintaining them than you would just mown rough. Uh, and with the cost of labor being an expensive thing and the variety of kind of approaches to really take like a selective managed native area management style, it can end up, you know, not necessarily saving the course that much to create something like that. And I can think of a place in particular out in California that did a great job of it, uh, of creating these sort of arid areas as a, as a turf reduction and water saving measure, but they were going out and raking up the leaves from in between the little bushes yeah. in between because golfers didn't want the leaves to be there. And so it was, you know, when it starts to get like that, those areas can be, you know, really very expensive and it's not so much in the initial construction of them, although that can be expensive as well, but the long-term maintenance cost, again, based on expectations, right? I mean, when you look at the peripheral sort of scruffy dune areas that you see in old pictures of, you know, Lynx courses or old pictures of Sandbelt courses, they weren't spending any time taking care of those areas and they look pretty cool, but they were rough and you could get a bad lie and you could get stuck in a clump of bush or underneath a stick. I mean, all these different scenarios, footprints, everything, uh, the modern golfer doesn't necessarily always want that. So you can end up with some, some surprising cost impacts of something that, you know, is meant to look like, oh, this doesn't cost anything. Yeah. Us golfers really don't deserve golf, do we? No, that's right. <laughs> we really I, don't I think, when you think about well, you've it. Well, got, you've got a, a thing you always say, Rod, isn't it, that there's two types of golfers. There's the ones that care about golf courses – and then I forget mm. what the other type is, but they they care about their own golf game. Their own or score. It's your own look score, up right. and look down yep, yep, yep. line, I think, is correct. So. And I think that's what's that's what's appealing about this sort of study because this is talking mm. absolutely about the effect of golfers on, on courses golf. yeah. over over yeah, time. The, the, what I find really interesting about what you've done here, George, this is all about the Distance Insights Report, but what it's actually uncovered is a whole bunch of other really important stuff. So hitting distance and the strategy and how that affects the game, that's all very internal discussions about golf. Your golf nerds get into that sort of stuff, how far the ball carries and whether hazards are placed and all those sorts of things. But this really is about that next impact, isn't it, which is uh, the game getting bigger on a planet of finite resources, and that is definitively the case, as your study's shown, what do we do about that? And for those who are members at private clubs, uh, that might not matter. There'll be internal golf things happen. The strategy of the course will change because they can't expand any further and whatnot because the ball goes further. But for public golf and the game more broadly, it's not so simple, is it, George? Because the footprint can't continue to increase. I think you note in the report that public golf generally is the least least impacted. The least impacted yeah. in terms of an increasing footprint. Yeah. But at the same time, those courses that don't keep up, for want of a better term, get looked down upon, less traffic, yeah. and the spiral downwards can be quite serious, can't it? So the, it, it's about distance, but it's about a lot more than that, what this has uncovered, I think. There's no question. Um, and there's, you know, there's questions that we can't answer uh, through this study. And the one that you, that you pointed to right there is a really good example the fact that the average public course hasn't changed its footprint much, that doesn't necessarily signify that or hasn't added much distance, for example, hasn't added a lot by, you know, new tees or moving greens. That doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't wish to. It may just simply mean that they don't have the resources mm -hmm. 
necessarily to do it. Um, Not enough money to stuff things up. To kind of add on that, that growing footprint discussion is nearly all the golf courses that we studied didn't grow much once they were built. So a golf course has a pretty limited, from what we observed, pretty limited ability to expand beyond its boundaries once it's established. There's a few exceptions to that uh, where our course you know, grows into the woodlands around it or, you know, acquires an adjacent parcel of property for an additional couple of course features or practice range, for example. But for the most part, they're, they're pretty limited in what they could do with their property size. And, and that, that makes sense kind of logically, but where you see the growth is in the new developments where the footprint of a new course built in the nineties, two thousands, 2010s is considerably bigger than the ones built in the 20s and 30s so that's a concern you know that's a concerning trend uh on the one hand the offsetting aspect of that is there's so few courses being built today how big of an impact does that have on the game how big of an impact does that have on the footprint of the game going forward is something to wonder and then also does that limit the ability for new golf courses to get built because there's these requirements for more land that prevents, you know, new cool courses that we might all enjoy seeing from ever happening because of the, the needs, you know, to make them happen. And so there's just a lot of different avenues to kind of wonder about as you, as you look through this data. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk some numbers with the, the sizes there. The, I think the, the sizes in the U.S., the main sample in the U.S. went from about 130 hectares uh, is that right? Something that order of magnitude to something like 230 hectares over the period sampled, um, which I found absolutely staggering and possibly you know, <laughs> a bit confronting. Partly accounted for by this move to courses to, to build newer courses away from metropolitan areas where there is more space. But it, it really raises the question of why you need so much space. For comparison's sake, the old course is 100. He- uh, sorry, I kept saying hectares, acres, I meant. Um, the old course is 100 acres, uh, which is about the size of a Sydney suburban golf course. The, the place where I play is 100 acres and it's considered a very small property. Cronulla Golf Course in here, here in Sydney is uh, 81 acres, an 18-hole course, considered to be sort of lower tier one, like a pretty good course. Mm. Yeah, it's a good golf course. Yeah, yeah. Like champ- sort of almost like Sydney's version of a championship golf course on 81 acres. Uh, and yet this this average for the US sample came out at 230 acres, which I just found staggering. But at the same time, the, there's this, what I, I think of as stretching and squeezing of the holes, where the holes are longer, but the playing surfaces the fairways are narrow. Have, been, have been squeezed, so that all the holes have been stretched and squeezed, in, and then they're existing in these big properties. Um, the whole thing just seems... It seems like madness. <laughs> if you're it, a non-golfer, you'd it just, just cancel seems, the game immediately, wouldn't you? It George? seems like absolute madness. So, like, save the, us the here. I get, but I don't get the squeezing, and I don't get the need for so much land. Um, it just the, so a couple of things to to kind of mull over as you look at that. Uh, acres is the right is the right number, and I'm looking at the table right now. And in the in the most recent map year from courses from the 20s through the 2010s. The oldest courses have ended up uh, right about 160 acres uh, total footprint. So that's including facilities and all the other things. 
Uh, and the newest ones, like you said, are at about 230. I'm not familiar with what the golf course acreage of the old course is, but one thing to remember is that in this discussion of footprint, you, you would include probably that practice facility that's across the boundary there, okay. um, which would be part of our kind of normal measurement. Uh, that sort of that clubhouse area that kind of serves right near the new course. I mean, so there's there's some de facto facilities of the old course that wouldn't necessarily go into that hundred acre measurement. But you're right. Check uh, in the whole town, actually, George. It's a measure. <laughs> the yeah, whole exactly. town it's is a, part of the golf fair, facility. There fair, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big bunch of pro shops yeah. involved, but <laughs> the you know the thing that was interesting about the Australian courses, for example, is that there's no question that there's just a fundamental difference there. Uh, you're seeing courses that have very comparable playing area sizes, comparable green sizes, comparable bunker areas, uh, comparable fairway sizes, even a little bit larger in the Australian courses, the average kind of fairway area than what we found in the average of the U.S. courses on considerably smaller properties. A big part of that, uh, just kind of looking through the data again, was the spacing between the holes is a lot tighter Uh on the Australian courses than it was in the U S courses in general. So you're kind of talking about, you know, related facilities is going to be a big part of that. And then you're talking about just kind of stuff in between, right? I mean, you're not necessarily, you're not really talking about golf features. You're talking about stuff between the holes or kind of related to the golf facility. And so that's an interesting trend to kind of, you know, evaluate for ourselves and think about, well, what do we want? And then, you know, the safety factor is an interesting balance there where it's, you'll see people talking about how, uh, you know, the increased distance poses an increased safety issue, right? I mean, just people kind of hitting the ball into, into more different parts of the course than they used to. Would you need a wider buffer? Would you not? I mean, golf has persisted in these Australian courses, with tighter spacing. I mean, the old course certainly is kind of, you know, one great big shared space, which is probably why that acreage is so efficient in a lot of ways is that, you know, you're playing, you know, when I'm playing 14 at the old course, I'm going down five fairway and coming over to the green that way. And I basically have a 80 yard expanse of fairway to work with to steer around that hell bunker. Those efficiencies don't exist with a lot of traditional golf, you know, kind of typical golf courses, I should say, not traditional. Um, because the holes are kind of segmented individually. So we expected actually to find that I would have expected anyway to find that there was more in the way of adjustments of increased spacing between holes and increased spacing between holes and the margins because of the safety issues, uh, increasing potentially. And we just didn't see it. Mm. Uh, and I think that goes to the fact that most courses are really pretty limited in how easy it is to, to shift things around i mean you've got your irrigation system you've got your drainage you've got i mean things are just in the places where they are and it's just not that easy to scooch over a little bit to to give some more room here and there so that's an interesting thing to think about Hello listeners, did you check out the golfsociety.com.au end of season sale yet? I did mention it last week. If you haven't, why haven't you? Up to 50% off some of the most sought-after brands in golf, from Under Armour and Hugo Boss to G4 and Puma. And don't forget, add an extra 20% to the discount price just for being a Talking Golf listener. Use the code TG at checkout 
That's thegolfsociety.com.au. Head there today. We know that courses have adapted as hitting distances have increased to settle some of the safety issues. But one of the points that you're making is this, is this. Has the low-hanging fruit been picked when it comes to adjusting for increased hitting distance? And this is particularly, I think, at that public course and the semi-private course, the the club golfers' real heartland, the grassroots of golf. I know you don't come to any conclusions uh, in the report about that, but for people who say, look, golf's always been fine and it'll find a way and everything's been fine, is that necessarily the case? Are we at a turning point? point, George. It's felt for a few years as though we were heading for some kind of turning point in the game, something important where whether we do something about hitting distance, one thing will happen. And if we don't do something about hitting distance, a different thing will happen. Are we legitimately possibly at that point or am I just being overly dramatic because I'm an old tabloid newspaper bloke? No, I mean, for existing courses, uh, like I said, the, the things that you're you're kind of looking at are the fact that they have not shown a tendency to adjust their footprint much and just looking at the aerials in most cases i mean there's houses around a lot of them i mean the vast majority of them or at the very least very distinct private property boundaries or roads or whatever that are going to prevent you from from really adapting much beyond your existing boundaries and so if you've added a bunch of distance to this point i mean chances are you've you've picked a bunch of the low hanging fruit. Has it all been picked? You know, maybe not, but even at some of the championship courses, we saw them getting tees right up against boundaries in a bunch of places, uh, to make distance increases. So eventually, you know, you will inevitably run out of room, especially if, if increasing the footprint isn't really an option for most places. The other downside potentially, so you may hit capacity, right, where you just you can't increase distance anymore. Or you may be able to increase distance, but, you know, potentially suboptimally, right? I mean, as, as you guys know, there's a difference between adding distance to a hole to preserve its, its characteristics, right? To, to keep a hole, you know, in that seven iron or five iron approach shot range where it, it could now be something like a wedge. But then there's holes where if you add distance, you you can potentially, if you add just distance just for the sake of adding distance, you can potentially make the hole less interesting, right? You can take a short par four and turn it into a longer par four that just, you know, has lost the risk reward aspect to it, right? And there's there's no shortage of examples of of holes that have just had distance added to them for the sake of picking up numbers on the scorecard. And it wasn't necessarily to the benefit of the interest of the course or the people who were playing it 90% of the time. Uh, and so that's that's an example of where you can oh, yeah. start to get awkward, right? Where you, you're starting to lose some interest. Um, and then the safety thing, I think, is another valid concern there where as you're, you know, as you've used up a certain amount of your options in terms of adding distance, you start to probably see some more of the stranger situations of kind of tees getting farther back into the hitting zone from other areas. You potentially move the hitting zone from that tee to a spot where it wasn't intended before. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether we're at the, the breaking point with it yet, but I think that there's certainly, there the, is a point yeah. uh, at which golf courses cannot grow any further and cannot add it distance in a sensible fashion, uh, and then you've got some 
some difficult challenges to solve. Well, you, what you end up then getting is golf courses that just close because they're no longer feasible. Mm-hmm. Then golf starts to disappear from communities. And in 100 years, <laughs> the only golf that's left is the Augusta National, the Pebble Beach, the big private high-end resort-style golf courses. That's not oh, that's necessarily – well, it's, it's not – but is it overly dramatic? Is it, Because we, you can see that those all things – the other thing, of course, George, which and Adrian, club golfers should think about, all of this makes the game more expensive. Yep. Now, it's less expensive here in Australia than it is there in the US, George, but it's not trending downwards, the cost of golf in Australia. It's trending upwards, and you can't be a golfer, demand amazing playing surfaces, incredible greens that are perfect all the time, and bunkers always in excellent condition, and for the game to maintain the same Mm. cost or get cheaper. Just continue to question, though, whether that increasing cost produces better golf. And and the go-to example here in Australia – which I know you've spent a bit of time down here, George, working on Barnboogle, but I don't know if you've got a chance to go and see Frankston Golf Club. Never did. No. Um, it's well, You're sorry now, aren't you, with the pandemic and all, George? You thought, <laughs> oh, I'll do that next time when Rod, I come back. Yeah. Rod's just shamed you. Um, the uh, it, It's it's a little nine-holer. Um, it's called the Millionaires Club, but the I think the, the subscription fees they pay to be a member there is, you know, just hundreds of dollars. Um, the trick is getting invited to be a member, but uh, the maintenance costs there are ridiculously small. They have a, a greenkeeper living on site and uh, I think one assistant that comes in to help out from time to time. No staff in the clubhouse. All the members have a key to the clubhouse. And the course is maintained magnificently. Um, you know, the the, area, the rough is rough, um, but the fairways are are beautiful. Um, they're, they're a mix of grasses. It's so they're, they're never going to sort of go to plant no. from you know lay turf or anything there. But but what you're talking about there, Adrian, I'm sure you'd agree with this, George. Is well, what's your definition of better then? So a couple of things have happened for golf, and one of them has been television golf. And so golfers are educated to think that Pebble Beach that we're looking at on the TV now, that's what good golf is. Very defined fairway cuts. In fact, diamond cut. We don't need to go into my feelings about that again. We'll get emails. We always do. Uh, diamond cut, very defined fairways, perfect sand. A monoculture of grass that goes all the way to the boundaries. That's exactly right. So, so much so that the rough has to be like fluffed up and like mm. sort of quaffed. God, we're grumpy old men. But George, yeah. is that <laughs> there's a truth there, isn't there? We've, we've talked about what golfers sort of demand, and this is a big reason, part about why they demand it, isn't it? They see television golf and think that's what good golf must be. The things that Adrian's talking about, people get to a stage of their golf life, I think, where those things become more important. You appreciate those more. But for the majority of golfers, they'd take Pebble Beach over Frankston any day of the week or a Pebble Beach presented course over Frankston pretty much any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how to I don't know where to draw the connection necessarily between how much television golf influences things versus, you know, just, I think a big part of it is just the way that golfers are, right? I mean, you just, you're obsessing over the minute details of of where your ball is and you're looking down and it's like, you know, you get a lot of, of outrage on social media, right? About, uh, whether or not you should get a, drop, a free drop from what you perceive to be a God. poorly repaired dip right in the fairways, that it's unfair. Are you trying to upset um, me, George? Why would you start but, that? It's, <laughs> but I think that that's an example of, you know, I mean, that's not something that that people picked up from TV golf. I mean, that's just golfers, right? I mean, that they, mm. 
I think that the notion of, of fairness in, in your golf experience is a really problematic one. And I think it's one that inevitably drives costs up and inevitably leads to unreasonable or needlessly expensive maintenance standards. Uh, and I think that that's something that has changed a lot, obviously, from the game's earliest days where I just don't, you look at the old photos of, you know, these matches, the guys with these early open championships and the conditions that they'd play in and the guys standing, you know, calf deep in a puddle in the middle of a bunker trying to hit the shot out. And I just, I think that, you know, once you start seeing fairness as, as something that's part of golf, and I, I, I personally don't really think that, that fairness necessarily, I mean, it's, it's almost inherently unfair, right? That you just, you know, the ball goes where it goes and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And, and that just, that's just kind of the nature of the game and and coping with that is a huge part of the, the sort of the mental and the physical challenge of the game. But as you try to take that out of the equation and get it to where, all right, well, I'm in a bunker, I should have this lie, no matter what bunker I'm in on the course, no matter how my ball came into it, anything I should be, it should be like this. And it's not right now what's going on here that starts to get really tough. And I don't think that you can necessarily pin that on television golf. I mean, I think that there's, there's an impact of golf on mm, TV uh, that you're on. and we talk about it a lot in the USGA green section that, you know, we've published a lot of articles and a lot of, you know, informational videos and, and spend a lot of time talking about that, you know, television golf is not what you should expect in your, in your daily golf round, because there's so much more resources that go into that presentation for that brief window of time than what would ever be possible at a typical golf course or even at the golf course that you're seeing. I mean, the golf course that you're seeing on television yeah, it doesn't look like probably that. No. has more resources to begin with and has had a bunch of extra resources put into it timed just for this event in order to make it happen. And so, I mean, there's an impact there, but I do think it's, it's things like fairness and, and worrying about, you know, an unfair outcome uh, and consistency and the sort of notion of consistency, which I think is just something that, that golfers increasingly worry about, uh, that, and that has a huge impact on, on maintenance. You almost need to actively think about it to come to the conclusion that that's not what you want though, don't you? I mean, it seems counterintuitive to think that an unfilled divot is a perfectly, in fact, it's one of the more interesting aspects of the game that you might end up in it and have to play a shot from a more difficult line. That's almost counterintuitive. You can see why people are taken. I understand. Yeah, I understand why people get upset about it. Uh, but when you really try to walk somebody through the thought process of like, well, all right, how are you going to say that this one's a divot and this one's not? Um, like, how do no, like every yeah. imperfection in the fairway could have been a an old divot, you know, at some point? And so, it, I mean, I think I really benefited a lot by spending a lot of time uh, when I was younger and really kind of growing into the game uh, in Scotland, working on the maintenance staff at Royal Dornock, you just, you learn how kind of un- unjust the game can be. I mean, that you know, the wind's against you on the way out. Well, it's got to be with you on the way in. Nope, it turned around <laughs> right when I got to eight. And now it's against me out and in. It's and out I, to I, get I just you. I played five courses worth of golf and I really only played one. And you know, I got all these bad lies. I ended up right up against the face of the bunker here and had to play out sideways. And I think that experience, uh, and the way that, that golf is, you know, on links courses, I would say that the sandbelt courses would be a pretty comparable, that sort of ragged, bad outcomes that you can get, even though those sandbelt courses are, are beautifully presented. Um, 
it teaches you about the game and it, and it teaches you about some of the bad breaks that I think the more that golfers can embrace the imperfections of the game as being kind of the beauty of the game in a certain way, I think that's where you start to probably bend the curve uh, with these kind of maintenance costs and, and really get to asking yourself, I mean, just looking at this study, would I rather have uh, fairways at, you know, at whatever I consider currently to be, you know, the desirable conditioning level, but only get 60% of the fairway that I used to have, or would I rather have more fairway area, more choices, but the fairways aren't quite as nice. And I can't answer that for people, but I think it's certainly something to think about as you look at the trends and, and ask yourself, would I rather have less bunkers or would I rather, you know, have the same strategic challenges that the course or strategic questions that the course once had? Would I rather have smaller greens or would I rather have more pinnable options? Uh, those are, and, and you know, people can say, I mean, it's people's preferences. And so I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with someone saying, no, I want the fairways the way they are now. And I don't care how wide they are. I mean, I think that that's a valid answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that they might be missing out on some nice parts of the game with that answer, but you know, people have to make their own decisions. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. I and that's what, I mean, I think that's a big part of what this is about, uh, is, is giving people an opportunity to make their own decisions based on facts rather than, you know, sort of speculation. Cause you know, golf is, is a game where people just like to talk, right. And <laughs> just talk and talk and talk about things that they don't necessarily have, you know, facts behind what they're saying. And so I, that was a big part of, of this specific effort was, was trying to put some facts behind the conversations that we all have about golf courses. I, I get what you're saying, George, but I just don't think you can give people the ability to make their own decisions. They can't be trusted. They, exactly they just can't be trusted. You give them all the data and all, they can't be trusted. They're going to make the wrong decisions. They're going to keep <laughs> shrinking the fairways and, and are, finding places to put new tees. That's that's just what's going to happen. What does Clay like to say? Disappointingly, in 40 years at Metro, I've never had a bad lie. <laughs> yeah, Metro well, is an interesting one because the, those playing surfaces are magnificent, oh, are. but it's very scrubby just off off the fairway. Off the fairway. Well, it's testament to Clates' driving that he's yeah. never had a bad He's never missed a fairway either, <laughs> which sort right. of helps with that. But. That's right. But, but it also runs out of fairway really quickly, mm. and it doesn't really have form or rough, no. um, which, is, which is what I find a little bit disappointing with a lot of what we see on TV, as we were just talking about what we're looking at now at Pebble Beach, um, what we saw at Wingfoot with the US Open. Um, in contrast to, say, Pinehurst Number 2, um, which I, I thought was a fantastic advertisement for the game and uh, we'll, we'll look back on in time as being one of the best open venues that I think the USGA has ever presented, um, especially in decades to come where you know water and, and those sort of things are going to become a battleground for golf courses. And rightly so. Absolutely. I, I think that example that the USGA set there uh, was was something really to hold up as, as a pinnacle venue for the USGA's showcase event. Um, I, I yeah, thought- and I was fortunate to work on that mm. restoration project. And, and I remember, you know, I mean, I had, I had seen the course beforehand and then obviously saw it during the project and after. And it was, a, I mean, one of the more dramatic changes, I think, in the history of the game to a course that established yeah. to make 
such a dramatic change. I mean, I, I joked about it before. I remember the first day walking out there and, and asking someone, does anybody know what you guys are doing out here? Like, it was crazy to see the <laughs> You're court. unsupervised. What's going on? In that kind of a state, right? I mean, like, have you guys talked to anybody about this? But, it, I mean, it was that dramatic of a change. And, and I think what's been really interesting about it is, you know, the championship aspect of it aside, that course is still so difficult and so challenging. And, and thriving commercially, George. And you're never hacking out of the rough, yeah. and you're never kind of challenging those, you know, kind of more traditional ways, I guess, that, that people think about challenge. Um, and so it's it's just a very interesting way to, to think about, you know, what makes for a good golf experience, and, what makes for a challenging golf experience. Uh, and their their maintenance program has changed dramatically from what it was in the past in terms of these acres of Bermuda grass rough and the overseeding that they used to do that they no longer do and the grasses that they had on their greens and the maintenance that needed to go into them to get them through the hot summer that they've since replaced to a better adapted species. And I think the really cool thing about that whole story between the architecture part and the approach to maintenance is that it does show that really dramatic change is possible. I mean, I think people feel like Oh, you know, golf is stuck, always stuck. It will never change. If a course that famous and that significant in the history of golf at a resort with that much money invested in the success of that course can make, you know, such a big transformation. And granted, it was like that in the past, but to return to that, to break with what they had so dramatically and totally, you know, big change to their approach to maintenance to accompany it then I think that, that that shows that there's a lot possible uh, when people kind of really start to, to grind into these problems a little bit and, and ask themselves whether some of the things that are, that are being done uh, make any sense to be doing and whether they're sustainable into the future. And I think you start getting into those questions and start to really think about them, you can really come up with some cool solutions. And, and the greatest testimonial Pinehurst number two ever got was when Donald Trump said it looked <laughs> terrible. And yeah, yeah, he did too, didn't he? He ragged on it big time. And interestingly, picked it out as, you know, it looks like a municipal course. So there's an image issue going on there between public and private, which is important too. I guess the most important thing about Pinehurst, though, in all of that, George, is it's still commercially thriving. It hasn't damaged the business of golf at Pinehurst. If anything, it's probably advanced it. And that's. I, I mean, that was. I mean, there's no question that that was the motivation yep. for doing it. I mean, they weren't. They weren't making all those changes for the sake of, you know, the image of the game. I mean, I, I, they were certainly cognizant of what those changes would mean for the game and what those changes might mean and what they might inspire and, and all of that. But it's a, it's a resort. It's a private business. They were making those decisions based on their business. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, those are business decisions and, and they've worked out. Uh, and they've made a bunch of good decisions to build upon that that restoration of number two on top of that. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, it goes to show that, that business and good sense can go together sometimes. That's exactly right. <laughs> the, 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 the game doesn't necessarily have to be hurt by changes in the way we do things. I can't recall. You might recall the figure off the top of your head. There was a staggering number of millions of gallons of water saved per year when Pine oh, yeah. made those changes. Can you recall what Went it was, George? One row of irrigation or something. I don't, it I was don't remember it off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a huge, a huge difference uh, both in the removal of the Bermuda grass rough and then also – 
uh, they stopped overseeding the fairways after they did the restoration. They basically chose the restoration as a point where they just they weren't going to do overseeding anymore because it was incongruous with what they were trying to promote in terms of firmness throughout the year, in terms of the playing conditions that they wanted, and in terms of the sort of year-round playability because the winter overseeding was having damaging effects on playability in other parts of the year. Um, and they were they were having their fall, which is arguably the best season there, mm-hmm. uh, compromised by the process of establishing that overseas. So the course is wet during the best weather of the year there, all that stuff. Uh, so when they moved away from that, that eliminated the need for all the water to establish the overseed, whatever watering they would need to do through the winter to keep the overseeded fairways going, the mowing associated with that. So there was a bunch of of pretty big impacts that, that came along with that. Um, and we've seen water use, you know, really good positive water use steps taken in a lot of places, usually once the pressure is applied. I mean, that was a little bit of a different thing with Pinehurst is that I think for the most part, water is relatively, I mean, they're in a climate where they get a lot of rainfall mm-hmm. yep. to begin with. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Western U S and certainly this would be a concern for Australian courses as well. Uh, where the water squeeze was a much tighter situation uh, and the cost of water was getting expensive to the point that it was really having an impact on courses budgets. uh, And the availability was a serious point where even if you were a very high end private club, I mean the highest end of highest end, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're immune to, you know, the will of your, your local County government when it comes to water allocations. And so there were places like the Valley Club of Montecito, which is you know a very high-end place that made wholesale changes to their fairway grassing because they just weren't sure what the water availability was going to be like in the future. And they felt like they needed to make a change and, and reduced a lot of their water use as a part of that. So yeah. I think that's a, I mean, that's a part of it too, that, that golf as a, as a whole needs to recognize is that, you know, golf being a good neighbor is an important thing because you know, the courses, the game may not always have a say, an exclusive say in these decisions, yeah, right? I mean, you're, put. Mm-hmm. you know, being a good part of your community is a big part of, you know, being treated as such. Yep. Whereas if, if you're kind of perceived in the opposite way, things may necessarily go, not go your way. Yeah. Clubs have to be seen to be doing the right thing as far as they know, even if they've got an abundance of water. This is a point, the place where I play has a big dam which was put in probably 40 years ago. And I think all the correct permissions and everything were gotten at the time to do it. But the council's now seen that dam and thought, oh, that's, you know, it, it's just, it's getting the runoff to from the, the, the whole suburb. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the council's seen it and gone, oh, you should be paying rates on that yeah. water that you've collected. From- Happened in Canberra too, yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, I don't think that's going to happen, but they've, they've also got some bores that um, they've tapped and an RO plant that's purifying the water. So, the, the club where I play has no problems with water, but I try and make the case that you should still be, you know, using that scarce resource right. because you, you need to be seen to be doing the right thing with the water and, and it just don't, doesn't mean you should use it all. That, that said, I, and I wonder how much this is true, that golf course, water that goes into a golf course isn't necessarily water that's just lost forever, is it? It, it, it goes down back into the water table and it just enters the cycle again. So I think we can tend to sort of overreact like the moment water hits the ground on a golf course, it's just gone. 
Um, is is that is that the case, George, or do we overreact yeah, with that? Or? There's there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of cycling effects there. So you've got you know a certain amount of it filtering through. You've got a certain amount of it that's consumed by plants uh, and also let off by plants. I mean, there's there's benefits in terms of the cooling effect of of just having that natural space and maintaining it. Matthew Wharton uh, sent us an article about this, mm. um, which we'll have to get him on to talk about sometime, about how that cooling effect has a dramatic impact on the housing around. Nearby, yeah. And, and there was, it might have been a USGA report, George, that um, compared- Yeah, we've got a research project that's looking into those kind of yeah. uh, ecosystem community benefits that, that golf courses can offer. And that's one of the areas uh, is that sort of local- cooling effect that Com- can be yeah compared to housing compared to say a parking lot or something yeah, yeah, yeah could you address a copy of that to the lord mayor city of sydney <laughs> councillor clover moore and send yeah. it off in the next few days please because i think it's actually important that people like clover moore and those who are anti-golf of which there is a that's a real section of the community uh, in good faith need to look at studies that find that golf courses aren't just a detriment environmentally that there are actually uh, other positions. Yeah, so, that's that's something that we're certainly uh at the USGA and in the green section in particular is something that we're looking to get a better handle on because, uh, you know, there's certainly, there's a lack of data behind the benefits of the, the uh-huh. golf courses can offer a community. And it's so important to have that, that understanding because otherwise it's very easy, uh, you know, for the, for the discourse in public and in the media to just go whichever direction it wants to go. If you don't have, Facts. facts to support what you're yeah. talking about it, it's very easy to just get into like a you know well i say this you say that okay you know throw up our hands kind of situation whereas what we want to do is really we want to understand those benefits we want to understand and help golf courses understand the potential benefits so you know where are the places where mm. as a golf facility you can improve what you offer to your community uh and potentially save resources for yourself and those naturalized areas are a good example where, you know, I wrote an article last year about bird habitat on golf courses and how to, how to get the most from that. And most of the, you know, recommendations that we kind of delved into involve just doing less, like just take care of less, you know, let your native areas be a little bit messier. Let, you know, it's okay if there's some weeds out there, in fact, the native species often depend on a bunch of these native weeds. And if some branches fall down, it's okay to leave them leave sometimes them. Yeah. if they're in out of play areas and that everything doesn't need to be so tidy. I mean, that was a joke that they told at Pinehurst uh, when we were working on the project is that, you know, that they used to keep the, the pine forest areas so tidy that they joked that there was guys out there catching the pine cones as they fell down <laughs> to make sure they never hit the ground. And that was something that, that Ben Crenshaw pointed out as saying, you know, this is something that we want to see changed as part of this project is that let some pine cones fall down because that used to be part of the experience of playing this course was that you had a bunch of pine cones in front of you and around your ball and you had to, you know, that it was just part of it. And then it had gotten so tidy that that had gotten lost. Um, and so, you know, they manage it to an extent, I think, but it's not like it was. And that that same thing, you know, can bring a lot of benefits and can save golf courses time. I mean, time is like it's, one of the most valuable resources yeah. now, and it just keeps getting more and more expensive with staff time. It's just such a precious resource that, 
you know, you can spend it picking pine cones in the woods or you can focus it on greens, teas and fairways and bunkers instead. Uh, one of the other things about that, George, of course, is you want to know as golf what is detrimental about the game as well so that you can work towards changing it. So it's not just about yeah. trying to find the positives and present that as though that's the whole picture. It, it's got to be an honest assessment of the impact of the game by people who are in the golf industry to then say, okay, and here is some of the plans we've got to make it better. Uh, that's it's that's important. exactly right. And that's, I mean, we've done uh, studies through the green section uh, and the research that we fund uh, on everything from, you know, nutrient transport across golf courses and how does, you know, how does water quality change as it enters a golf course and comes out the other side Is a golf course, you know, is the water cleaner? Is it picking up, you know, runoff from the golf course and changing in any kind of way? And we found that in often, oftentimes the water's cleaner coming out the other side of the golf course than when it entered. Um, and that fears about nutrient runoff and these kind of things are often unfounded because of the nature of turf grass systems and so forth. But basically, the reason that those studies were conducted was to address potential concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that we're still, that the USGA and the USGA Green Section are still very much focused on is, like you said, trying to stay ahead of those potential concerns uh, and, and not only look at the ones that exist today, but what are we going to be worried about 10 years, 20 years in the future and how can we use, you know, science, how can we use improved management practices? How can we use better grasses to address a lot of those problems before they're really, you know, before they've arrived on a lot of people's doorstep? Because that debate's only just starting. In 20 years, we'll be talking a lot more about that and a lot more people in golf will be much more aware of the realities of golf courses environmentally because they'll need to be uh, to continually make the case that, Golf has a place. We've taken up more of your time than I meant to, George. And a couple of things I just wanted to finish up with, and this is the last one for me. I think Adrian's probably got some other stuff that he wants to ask you about. But I think it'd be safe to say that the sorts of positions we're taking here and putting forward are the minority in golf, amongst golfers. However, it does seem a lot of the cool kids are on board with this stuff at the moment as well. How important is this messaging to continue and to bring people along with us uh, in this way. I mean, do you see, it feels like golf is, has, has been shifting for maybe a decade. Everything in golf moves fairly slowly. You only got to look at the size of the assets to understand why. But do you feel that move in that direction? George, there's a lot of good stuff happening with a lot of young people in golf media. Uh, they talk about this sort of stuff. It does seem like it's important to them. Um, do you see a shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, I don't know that I'd be able to sort of quantify the shift but i would say that there's there's unquestionably there's been a growing appreciation understanding of of golf course architecture i think that there's been a growing appreciation and a, and a really expanding interest in travel uh which i think is important for golf because i feel like the more i benefited a lot from traveling mm-hmm. and seeing different approaches to to, you know, to what the game could be. And, and you guys made an example earlier of, you know, take practice facilities, for example, in the UK. I mean, they tend to be pretty sparse if there's any at all. Now, I know a lot of them feel the pressure to do more, but at the same time, when you get a chance to kind of experience a lot of these different places and a lot of different kind of golf cultures, I think it can open eyes to to what's possible. And so I think that growing interest in architecture, that growing 
interest in travel and growing interest in seeing places that are just kind of off the radar. I mean, that's the thing that, that blows my mind a lot when you just following people around on social media and stuff is where people manage to get to. I just, I remember, (laughs) I remember feeling like I was really, you know, when I was traveling a lot, 10, 20 years ago, I felt like I was going to places that, you know, nobody had ever seen before. I mean, I know, you know, Tom Doak had been, but it wasn't, it wasn't like people were going up to Brora and droves. And now I feel like everybody's been to Brora and not only have they been to Brora, but they've been on past it all the way up to the top. And so it's, you know, people are seeing a lot more, I think. Uh, and that's a certain, okay. That might be a certain smaller group of people who post a lot of photos and not everybody travels like that. Like I certainly understand that part of it, but I think that there's a bigger appreciation than ever in, you know, sort of municipal type golf. I mean, I think that, and that goes right to big name people, uh, that are, you know, the Maginellas of the world. I mean, people are, are putting a spotlight on local golf courses more than they ever have. I feel like, uh, and so I think people are getting to see more in the way of what golf can be, how golf can integrate into a community, getting the opportunity to think more about, you know, what, what kind of condition does, does my golf course really need to be in for me to have fun? How long do I need to play to have fun? Do I need to play 18 holes to have fun? What are the important aspects of the game? And I think that's a really significant shift is that that conversation is happening a lot more and, I think people thinking about that has a lot of, you know, potentially really positive impacts. Now there's going to be some parts of the game that, that don't change. There's going to be courses that have tons of resources. They want their conditioning like this. Their golfers are prepared to pay for it. And they're not, you know, they're just not focused on doing something different. And I think that that's fine. I mean, I think that that's, that's part of the game also. But I think that there's a lot of people that are getting to see a lot of different stuff now and, and finding ways to make golf work, you know, hopefully finding ways to make golf work in, in areas where, you know, it's struggled because there's still no doubt that there's more golf courses closing by far than, than are opening. Now that's a, you know, that's a supply issue that, you know, has a lot of different routes to it, but, you know, I think, the more that golf courses can find ways to be successful. Uh, and there's no question that a lot of them face all kinds of financial pressures. I think that that's just that much better for the game, right? Mm, couldn't yeah. agree more. You, you, you're forgetting, of course, with some of that travel that travel stuff there, George, that uh, golfers, there's this phenomenon among golfers where they, they go and experience a place like a Brora and they, they come away from it a changed person. But then the moment they arrive back at their home club, <laughs> what's they, Rand call it? The lobotomy. They get this lobotomy, <laughs> which just transforms well, them back to what they were. And, 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 they, and when you know, they get in committee positions at clubs, they they just talk about putting the next fountain in or yeah. the next garden or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, car yep, parts. It can, and it can happen in real time, also, Adrian. Where I mean, I remember I caddied at Dorna uh, for sort of spare change when I was there, and we'd have people that you know, we're making a trip from the U S they used to put me with American folks a lot and say, you know, Oh, the American guys will be happy to see you. And you know, they, I mean, I'll, I'll admit that there was a significant portion of them that were amused by links golf, but you know, just said right out loud, like this has been all right, but I can't wait to get home to normal bunkers and normal grass again. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily impact everyone the same, but I, I do think that there's, the impacts are there. Your faith in humanity 
it's, 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 it's both mis- misplaced. <laughs> I, and I also, know. I think the, you have to have it. You have, you have to have it in the golf business. You got to believe that's true. that change and change is possible. True. I think you're absolutely right, there, and, and I think Adrian would agree with this too. It, for those who are wired that way, a trip to Scotland really is the only way to actually discover what golf can mean to you. And there are those people who go there and go, eh. There's no beer cart. We had to walk everywhere. It was no good. That's a very different approach to golf to those of us who go there and go, wow, I didn't know golf could be like this. And then you come home the opposite, disappointed in every facility that you've got access to back here. So, uh, Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's not I right don't think that, that that needs to mean that you go to Scotland and see those courses and come back and expect your course to be toasted brown and, you know, but – I think you can at least see that Scotland, different, even just traveling in different parts of mm-hmm. the United States, like just kind of getting outside of your, you know, the local courses that you see most often and, and getting around the neighborhood a little bit. I think that you just see some different approaches and some different things where it doesn't necessarily need to be like a radical, you know, I totally changed my viewpoint, but it's just like, hey, you know, maybe we don't need this, this and this, or maybe we don't need to worry so much about that or you know, maybe I don't care that much about this like I thought I did. I mean, I think those kind of things are, they can be subtle changes that can be really impactful. And then you get a place like Pinehurst that has such esteem in the game mm. that makes a big change. And I think that, you know, action, obviously, right, changes a lot more than anything. And so when you see a place like that make a big change like that, that gets people's attention. Couldn't agree more. Well, I think the outlook's... It's interesting, isn't it? It's not all bleak, um, but look, uh, congratulations to the whole USGA on the Distance Insight Report. As I said, I didn't realise it was quite as comprehensive as it is and as detailed, but congratulations and, and good on you for your part in that as well, George. A really interesting and important part of the study, which, as I said, it's not the glamour part. It won't get the bulk of the attention, but I think as we've uncovered today, really, really, really important stuff that you've uncovered here and lots of really interesting questions, which I applaud the USGA for saying straight out, we don't have the answers. But here are some of the questions the game needs to yeah. ask itself. We're just going to put this data out there and trust that people do the right thing with it. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> just the look on Adrian's face tells <laughs> you what he thinks about that as an idea. Uh, I, I love the uh, – I mean, the, the green section's contribution to this is remarkable. But I also just love that name, green section. And I wonder – I'm going to go from here to work and uh, start calling myself part of the IT section and see how that goes down. <laughs> Why, why does the green section yeah, get a, to use that word and everyone else is a department? The finance. I agree. Why isn't it I the finance it section? Nice, I think it has a nice ring to it. It makes it sounds kind of, you know, it sounds special. It does. And it sounds why, like what's we so just special? Why are you so special? Our, last year was our 100th anniversary. And it, it sounds, I mean, I feel like green section sounds, yeah. you know, like a department that has a good solid 100 year history to it. So, yeah, we're proud of it. We like the name. It sounds like a department that's never in the office, is what it sounds like. It sounds like it's always out <laughs> it on a does. golf course somewhere. That's what it really sounds like. It's yeah, just a work, section that moves. Working. Out yeah. on a golf course working. Yeah, we yeah. To make that stipulation. We're not just out there having fun. No, no, indeed. No, don't, don't dare have fun at work. That would be awful. Humanity <laughs> couldn't possibly put up with people who enjoyed what they did for work. The whole system would come crashing down. George, it's been fantastic of you to take some time today, mate. We really enjoyed it. And I think we're putting you on the list of people who will be back because there's lots more stuff to explore with you beyond just this report. But we appreciate you taking the time today, mate. 
appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and talk about the report and spend some time talking about golf. And, and thanks again for the invite. And I'm always happy to come back. Well, you've just put yourself right in it with the always happy to come back. And that's on you, not us. Adrian, great to talk to you today, mate. And thank you for organizing for George to come on and for being a part of the discussion as always. Thanks, Rod. Yeah, it would be great to get George back on. Just, I mean, we could talk about his book or oh. the, the, all the places he's worked. He talked about that episode of Feed the Ball, raised as many questions as it answered. <laughs> some fantastic <laughs> stuff in there. There was some great stuff. And also, I think, uh, George, if people want more George, um, there was an episode of uh, The Fried Egg, I think you did, with Garrett Morrison. Is that right? I did, yeah. We talked about uh, about Lynx golf courses. Uh, so, yeah, plenty of uh, – and obviously you can find uh, – I do uh, plenty of articles for the USGA Green section uh, during the course of most years. And so most of that's that's fairly easily found. So Follow yeah, plenty George of ways to get in touch. And people shouldn't be hesitant to, to reach out if they have any questions about – what we're doing in the green section or anything about this uh, golf courses report and research that we did uh, reach out and I'm happy to answer any questions that come up. Follow George on Twitter. He links to all of those articles as he does them and they are all worth reading. At G Waters Golf. At G Waters Golf. Would you like me to put that in the show notes, Luke? Yeah. Yeah, put it on the list. That'd be good if you could. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good on you, mate. Thanks for that. (laughs) Good on you, George. Love it to chat. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot, guys. Episode 64 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. We'll be back next week with episode 65 here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.